Hey, listen, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, join me in John chapter 16. We're going to be finishing out chapter 16 this morning by God's grace, going through verses 25 through 33. I'm going to do is read this for us, and I'm going to pray and ask God to bless our time to work through the preaching, the teaching of the word. John 16 starting at verse 25, and it reads, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you, will, that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, even for the beautiful words that we read here that are an encouraging reminder for us. Father, I pray for the time that we have here together this morning. God, I am just a man who is fallible, who is imperfect, who is flawed. God, I could never speak to the glory that you deserve. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would lead me during this time. Father, that it would guide me as I preach, Father, and that as you work in and through the preaching of your word, I pray that you would open hearts to receive the truth of what is said here this morning. Father, would you open our eyes? Would you illuminate the truth of your word, that it would speak to us in a powerful way, that it would change us, that it would encourage us to leave this place and to live for your glory? And through it all, would Christ Jesus be exalted? And I pray these things in his name. Amen. So for the last several weeks, we've been focusing on Jesus's words from uh, the upper room discourse. This is taking place over the course of several chapters. And so the hour has finally come for Jesus Christ to be simultaneously humiliated yet glorified at the cross. See, Jesus is steadily marching towards Calvary and in a few moments that he has left, he wants to remind his disciples of some very significant truths. He wants to offer them some encouragement and some comfort. So as we've looked at these words over the last few weeks, Jesus has said some pretty significant things. He's challenged his disciples to abide in him. He's reminded them that he is indeed the true vine and that apart from him, there's nothing that they can do. He's also promised to send this wonderful helper, this great comforter that is the Holy Spirit that will guide them in all truth. He's even honest with his disciples and tells them, listen, you're going to face some persecution. 
The world is going to hate you. There's going to be some adversity that comes your way. But he reminds them that they're not alone. He reminds them to love one another. And even as we found out last week, there is a sorrow that they'll experience, a temporary sorrow that will eventually lead to their joy after his departure. You see, when we arrive here at verses 25 through 33, this discourse is coming to a close, and Jesus is going to challenge his disciples one final time. And he's going to challenge them not to stand firm in their own abilities, not to be comforted by their earthly circumstances, not even to find strength in one another, but he's going to encourage them in him. He wants them to stand firm because of him. You see, for the Christian, that is the foundation that we build upon. Christ is the reason that we can endure, the reason that we are preserved daily. You see, for in Christ Jesus, we are redeemed. It's because of Jesus that we're sons and daughters of the King that we're brought into this family of God. See, Jesus is the risen Savior, and in him we have an eternal hope, one that is beyond this life. You see, though the world may crumble around us, Christ is the reason that we can rejoice. Like, I know that sometimes the, the waters get muddied around this holiday season. When we think about Christmas time and we think about Thanksgiving and the reasons we give thanks and the reasons that we celebrate, listen, Christ is it. Amen? Is this thing on? You see, the world may crumble and everything may shatter around us, but we have reason to take heart and rejoice, and it's because of Jesus Christ. You see, I titled this message, Christ Has Overcome. And I know some of you are thinking, man, you didn't put a lot of thought into that title. And you're right, I didn't really need to. Because I feel like the biggest takeaway is clear. You see, as those that are in Christ, even in the face of tribulation, we have an unshakable peace. See, we have hearts that are encouraged because Christ Jesus is triumphant. See, regardless of the challenges that may come, regardless of what this life may bring, all the burdens of this world, Christ has conquered sin and death. He's the risen king, and we are redeemed in him. You see, Christ's triumph is greater than any tribulation. And Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that, and I hope that every believer in this room this morning understands that truth as well. Again, that's got to be our biggest takeaway from this morning, and that's where we'll land, that's where we'll end our time, and I really want to drive that home. But as we kind of journey through this passage, I have a couple of points that I want to make. So number one, and we'll just jump right in. Point number one is we're going to see this lack of understanding, right? And we see that in verse 25. So as this section begins, Jesus says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. But then he says, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. You see, we're reminded in verses like these that the meaning of Christ's words weren't always easy to comprehend. See, the meaning wasn't always readily accessible. It wasn't always apparent. See, sometimes Jesus' words were difficult to navigate. If you think back to Matthew 15, 
This was even the case for the disciples. They didn't always understand what Jesus said. So in Matthew 15, Jesus is having this conversation with this group and the disciples, and they're challenging Jesus' followers, like, why didn't you guys wash your hands before you eat? And then Jesus gives them this parable about it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, but actually what comes out of them that defiles them. And then it says that Peter, speaking on behalf of all of the disciples, comes to Jesus and is like, what are you talking about? I don't understand what you're saying, Jesus. Will you please explain the parable to us? We don't get it. Right? Or even in Mark 9, when Jesus is pointing them forward to his death, his crucifixion that is to come. And then it says they had no idea what he was talking about when he said he would be raised on the third day, he'd be raised up again. And it says that they wanted to ask him, but they were scared. They had no idea what he was talking about. They were scared to ask Jesus. You see, even if you look earlier in this discourse, back in chapter 16, it says that Jesus has said, a little while you won't see me, then a little while you'll see me again. And the disciples are like, Jesus, we don't understand what you're saying. We don't know what you're talking about. See, I just want to make a couple of comments about this before we move on. First of all, that the disciples' lack of understanding was sometimes due to the fact that Jesus spoke in different language, that he spoke with figurative language, uh, language rather than literal language. So sometimes it was the elusive statements that Jesus would make that was hard for them to understand. You know, even if you go to Matthew 13, the disciples are like, Jesus, why are you always speaking in parables? Why don't you talk to them plainly? And Jesus tells them, look, this, the mysteries of the kingdom aren't for everybody. That's why I speak the way that I do. So even the disciples who had this intimate fellowship, this intimate relationship with Jesus Christ didn't always understand the things that he said. So it was his figurative language that often confused them. But the second reason, and Jesus gives us here, is because Jesus says there's an hour coming when he will no longer speak to them figuratively. And I believe that this is pointing forward to the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit is going to come and it is going to give the disciples the ability to comprehend Jesus's words where they will no longer uh, be covered or veiled for them. They're going to be able to understand what he's saying. The Spirit's going to reveal the truth of Christ's words to these men by the Holy Spirit. But not only that, Jesus just in a, a regular or literal sense is going to speak to them plainly. If you see after the resurrection when he appears to Mary and he tells them, look, go and tell my brothers that I'm about to ascend to my father and their father, to my God and their God. He's plainly telling them, look, I'm about to go. There's no more analogies that I need to use. I'm plainly speaking to them that I am about to go to God the Father to leave the world. See, it's a reminder that it is the Spirit that often leads us in the ways of understanding as well. See, we've spent the last several weeks talking through these, this upper room discourse, and Jesus has spoken a lot about the Holy Spirit. And we want to make sure we understand that rightly. We want to have the right comprehension of the Spirit's work. What does the Spirit do? It reveals the truth to us through God's Word. Amen? Right? But the Spirit also leads us in how we are to pray and who we are to pray for. Right? The Spirit helps to give us the revelation of the Word that we have in front of us to rightly understand it. You see, that same Spirit that led these men to sit down and pen these words, the inspired Scriptures, that's the same Spirit that lives in you. So when we come to a text that maybe we say, man, I don't, 
I don't understand this. I don't understand Jesus' words here. What is he saying? And that's the spirit that helps us understand and comprehend what is actually being said. See, do you understand that the spirit leads us in the ways of truth? Just as it would lead these men to the full revelation of Jesus' words after his resurrection and ascension, that spirit also helps us in our own lack of understanding. So that's the first thing we see is that there's a lack of understanding from these disciples. But the second thing I want us to see, and this is very encouraging for us, point number two is this, the believer's direct access to God the Father. The believer's access to God the Father. So Jesus is going to follow up on his previous statement here by saying something that's really significant, something that I want us to take note of here if we look at verses 26 and 27. And Jesus says, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. I'm just going to stop right there. See, I love what Jesus says right here. He says, in that day, you're going to ask in my name. Now, Jesus has already said this several times, so we don't need to spend a lot of time on that. He said it in, earlier in chapter 16. He says it in chapter 15, verse 16. Then again in chapter 14, verse 13. So, but I do want to point out something unique that Jesus says here. I want you to notice, he says, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. That's significant. You see, that is a phrase that we can easily just breeze over as we're reading through this text, but it has massive implications here. See, Jesus is saying, I don't need to ask the Father for you. You see, for those of us that are in Christ, you have this wonderful privilege of being able to go directly to God the Father in prayer. Or you can make your own requests to God. You don't need Jesus to do that for you. You see, Jesus gave up his spirit and he laid down his life on the cross. And it says that when he gave up his spirit, the veil was torn in two. If you recall, the veil is what uh, blocked off or was an obstacle to the holiest of holies in the temple. And when that veil is torn in two, that's just a demonstration that now all of those who are in Christ have direct access to God the Father. I don't know if you know this or not, that's really good news this morning. You don't need Jesus to ask on your behalf. You yourself can go directly to God and pray. Have you really stopped to fathom the magnitude of this reality? And we think about the world and all of these wonderful resources and tools that we have and all of this wonderful knowledge that's readily available to us. Christian, do you understand what's readily available to you is God the Father himself, that you can pray to him, that you can cast your burdens upon him, that you can pray and make requests to the maker of all things. How glorious is that? It's a wonderful truth this morning. You have a direct line to God the Father. Jesus says, I don't need to ask the Father. In other words, we don't need to pray and say, Jesus, will you please go ask God if I can do this? Hey, Jesus, will you go ask the Father if I can have this thing? You don't have to do that. So I want you to think about it this way, like with my kids, right? 
They don't have to go to their mother and say, hey, will you go ask dad if he'll do X, Y, and Z for us? They don't have to do that. They can come directly to me because I'm their father and I love them. They can make requests directly to me. That's the relationship we have. Now, much like God the Father, my answer may be no. But guess what? That's out of love too. And that's for their good. Right? That's the direct access that you have to God the Father. And let's look at this text deeply because now here's the motivation. Here's the reason for it. See, Jesus says it's because God the Father loves you himself. Man, that, I don't want to skip over that. Because I think sometimes we just need that reminder. That as God's people, guess what? God loves you. God loves you. Man, I hope that encourages somebody in here this morning. See, Jesus reminds his disciples that they're loved by God. Man, we talk about this some, but I'm sure we'll talk about this again. But the holiday season is often difficult for people who feel isolated and alone. There's a lot of depression and anxiety and things that tend to rise to the surface during this holiday season is not everyone has the same things, right? Not everyone has a family that's loving. Not everyone has a bank account where they can just go to the store and buy all the things that their children or their family members or their friends want. And there's this difficult reality that often plays out through the holiday season. Listen, if you're in this room, regardless of your circumstances, rejoice because God loves you. If you're in Christ Jesus, you are loved by God. That's not a small, insignificant thing. See, let's look at verse 27, because Jesus continues here. He says, the Father himself loves you, and then he gives us the reason. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. See, you are loved by God because you are in Christ Jesus. It's not because I'm so wonderful. It's not because we're so amazing. It's not because I'm so talented or just this incredible individual. It's actually quite the opposite. That's what makes God's love so incredible. Because he knows all of our flaws and imperfections and our sin and our rebellion, yet he's chosen us in Christ. See, and the reality is that those who are in Jesus, God is also your Father. And you're eternally loved in and through Christ Jesus. See, Ephesians 3, 11, or 3, verses 11 and 12 says this. You see, Paul's writing about the mystery of the gospel. And then he says this, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So again, if you've believed in Jesus Christ, you've placed your faith in him, God is your father, you're loved by him, and you can confidently approach the creator of all things. And I want you to be encouraged by that this morning. It's a great reality for believers. But I'd also be remiss if I didn't take this time to offer a warning as well. You see, the disciples had come to believe in Jesus, and they were eternally secure in him, objects of God's affection. However, to those who reject the gospel, who reject Jesus Christ, those who continue in their sin of unbelief, guess what? Your destiny is determined as well. 
See, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And then he reminds a crowd of his hearers in John 3.36, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, these wonderful benefits that I've spoken about this morning, being loved by God, having access to him, calling him Father, that's only a reality for those that are in Christ. So if you're in here this morning, you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, you haven't looked to him in faith, as the text just said, that wrath of God remains on you. You're not an object of his affection. You're an object of his wrath. And I don't say that to scare anybody. I just want to tell the truth. I just want to say what the word says because I don't want anybody in here to perish, especially when salvation is so freely and readily available in Christ Jesus. In fact, the text reminds us that it's not God's desire that anyone should perish. 1 Timothy 2.4 tells us that. It's God's desire that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. That's available to those in here this morning that may not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Today can be the day of your salvation. See, as we continue on, we look at verse 28. Christ gives us a wonderful message here and reminds us of that salvation, reminds us of his coming. And that reminds us ultimately of the mission of Jesus Christ. So thankfully in God's loving kindness, he's provided a way for humanity to be redeemed and forgiven. And that happens in his son, Jesus. I want you to look at Christ's words in verse 28 here. And this is so incredibly timely as we get ready to observe the Advent season beginning next Sunday. Let's look at verse 28. Jesus says, I came from the Father, and I have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So Let's look at this. Jesus says, I came from God. Now, first and foremost, that reminds us of Jesus' heavenly identity. That reminds us of Jesus' deity. See, that's what separated him from any of the other messiahs that had come. See, Jesus is the son of God. He had descended from heaven. He had laid aside his heavenly privileges, and he comes to earth. See, that proves his divine nature. He says, I came from God. But then let's continue on. He says, I came into the world. See, this reminds us of the incarnation, the first advent, the reason that we celebrate Christmas. That God, the Son, comes to earth and takes on flesh. See, Emmanuel, God, with us. Jesus says, I came from God, and then I came into the world. Man, praise God that Jesus came and accomplished the plan of salvation for his people. Praise God that he was willing to do that. And then finally, Jesus says, I am leaving this world and going to the Father. See, this reminds us that Jesus has ascended to heaven, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. And his work is accomplished. It's finished. And because of him, we too have this eternal hope and this abundant life. And that he's gone to prepare a place for us and that in Jesus we are totally justified. I hope that's not something that becomes pedestrian to you. This is really a beautiful summary of the mission of Christ. You see, and then after these words, he 
begins to speak to his disciples further, and it seems like they kind of respond confidently here. Which brings us to point number three. We're going to see an imperfect faith in verses 29 through 32. You see, it appears as though the disciples are starting to understand, though again, they wouldn't fully comprehend the words of Christ and the work of Christ until the coming of the Holy Spirit and after the resurrection and ascension. Yet even with their imperfect understanding, they acknowledge that Christ does indeed know all things. See, this is essentially them affirming his omniscience, right? He has the ability to know all things, including the human heart, including the thoughts of men. Again, if you recall, earlier in chapter 16, the disciples had begun asking one another, what does he mean by a little while? And in a little while, he'll come again. And they were confused. And then back in verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 19, see, Jesus shows his divine knowledge. And it says Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. You see, so if nothing else, they are able to see here the, de the deity of Christ, his divine authority, his divine power. They recognized him as the incarnate son of God who does indeed know all things, which is why they respond as they do in verse 30. It says, now we know that you know all things and you don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. Now, while this is a wonderful affirmation that these men make, this is a bit of an indictment on themselves as well. You see, they say, now we know. I mean, let's look at this briefly. I mean, have they really been with Christ for all this time? And they're just now at a place where they're saying, we get it. They'd heard him teach. They'd seen the miraculous things he'd done. And now they're like, okay, now we know that you actually have come from God and that you know all things. You see, was their faith really that flimsy? We know that they'd come to believe in him and that we'd seen a, a bit of an unambiguous confession by Peter about Christ, right? If you go back to chapter 6 at the end of the bread of life discourse, Peter says, man, we've believed and we've come to know that you're the Holy One of God. Right, so they'd made some sort of profession before this. You see, I love to see what Jesus does right here. You see, even if we go back to that profession in chapter 6, see, P Jesus brings them back down to earth. See, Peter says, look, we know and we've come to believe. And then Jesus says, did I not choose you? And you see, he's going to do something similar here. He's yet again going to offer them this humble reminder after their affirmation of him. See, they're really excited here. Like, oh man, we get it. Now you're finally speaking to us plainly. Oh, we know you're the one who's come from God. You know all things. We believe, Jesus. And I'm sure these dudes are very pumped up and excited. And then Christ once again is going to taper their enthusiasm with a gentle yet honest rebuke here. You see, he's going to remind them that they're imperfect men with an imperfect faith. Guess what? Just like we all are. Right? Look what he says here in verse 31. He says, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. See, Jesus says, do you now believe? 
I mean, you could just hear the irony in his words. The, his question is a rhetorical one. Look, he doesn't need an answer from them because he knows what's about to transpire. He knows all things. You see, so even despite their affirmation here, acknowledging Christ as the one sent from God, see, Jesus is going to remind them, look, your faith is still very immature. Your faith is still very imperfect. He says, in fact, in just a few moments, guess what? You're all going to leave me behind anyway. You're all going to run and abandon me. You're going to prove that you're fallible men, that you're imperfect followers. See, what you guys don't understand is your, your faith is going to be tested sooner than you think. And you're not going to pass the test. You're going to stumble and you're going to scatter and leave me behind, though it would only be temporary. See, Jesus had even warned Peter of this back in chapter 13. He had told him, look, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And then he takes a moment here to remind these men, like, listen, there's going to be a moment where you fail as well. And I'm arrested and betrayed and taken into custody. You guys are going to leave me behind. You're going to forsake me. You're going to flee. You're going to run. See, listen, this is a great place for us to stop and to make some application as well. And hopefully what I want to do is encourage you. See, when I read through the Gospels and I read the accounts of the disciples and I see them flee and leave Jesus behind, man, I just want to indict these dudes. I just want to say, man, how in the world could you behave this way? How could you flee? You were right there with Jesus, the Savior, the Son of God. How did you leave him behind? How could you doubt? How could you not trust you see, then I'm immediately convicted as I'm face-to-face -face with my own failures. See, I may not have never left Jesus in the garden, but man, I failed him in many other ways. I haven't always loved him above all others. I haven't always loved my neighbor as myself as he commands. I haven't always given time to studying the word and spending time with him in prayer. I haven't always given him my greatest affection. There are many ways that I, too, have let the Lord down. See, the list goes on and on. Just like these men, I've fallen short. You see, for these men, it got Christ's greatest hour of revelation was also their greatest hour of failure. And that's the truth for all of us, that we've all failed in many ways, that we've all fallen short of God's glory, but here's the encouraging part. And you're not saved by your performance. It isn't you that preserves you. Man, you want to talk about giving thanks right now? Man, thank God that he keeps me and I don't have to keep myself. That's a wonderful truth. It's Christ that sustains us. You see, if it were up to me, I'd mess it up every single time. If I had to keep myself, if I had to hold fast to Christ instead of him holding fast to me, I'd let it slip through my fingers every single time. I mean, we are so thankful that even as people with imperfect faith, we are being kept and preserved and we can endure because the Lord keeps us. See, Jesus says back in John 6, he says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. 
So that's a wonderful reminder that if you're in Christ, you are eternally secure. Look, if we even look at the encounter of the disciples, yes, they fled from him. Yes, they abandoned him. And we'll get to this maybe in a couple of months. We'll get towards the end of the Gospel of John. And you're going to see the disciples restored. You're going to see them come back to Jesus and fellowship with him. See, Jesus doesn't neglect them and say, oh, I'm done with you guys because you left me behind. No, he continues to fellowship with them after he resurrects. He tells Peter to feed my sheep. He reminds them of their mission. He doesn't abandon them. See, it's not about them or their imperfect faith. It's about a glorious Savior that keeps and sustains us and helps us to endure daily. Brothers and sisters, please let that be an encouragement to you this morning. That it's Christ that keeps you. See, Jesus had utter confidence not in his disciples, but he had his confidence in God. Let's look at verse 32, the end of verse 32 here. See, it reminds us of this perfect and constant union between God the Father and God the Son. See, Jesus says, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. So he says, look, you're going to go, but it's okay, because the Father is with me. See, Jesus had the cross in view. And knew it was something horrendous, something ugly, something to be despised. But he said, it's okay because my Father is with me. See, God was leading him to carry out the will of the Father, to accomplish this plan of salvation. That's just a great reminder of Christ's commitment to do even the most ugly, the most heinous thing because he had confidence in God the Father. Do you, this morning, also have confidence in God the Father? You have confidence in your Savior who is Jesus Christ. They were so thankful for Jesus and his work of salvation. I hope that's what gives you confidence even right now. Hope that what, that's what gives you confidence in your most difficult moments. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that kind of leads me to my last point. And this is point number four. Christ has overcome. Let's look at verse 33. Beautiful passage, one I think everyone in here is pretty much familiar with. See, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. See, Jesus says these things. Now, again, this is essentially a summary of all of the things that Jesus has said to his disciples in this discourse. You see, he wants them to call these things to mind here. So in the hour when he does go away and they're left alone, even though the helper is coming, that they will call these things to mind and be encouraged by them. Jesus says, in fact, I want you to have peace. Now notice what he says here. He says, I want you to have peace in me. See, that's significant. He doesn't say, I want you to have peace in the world. He doesn't say, I want you to have peace in your relationships or because of your vocation or your occupation. Don't have peace because your bank account is full or because you have perfect health. Don't have peace because there's a bunch of presents under the tree on December 25th. He says, no, I want you to have peace in me. Why is that significant? Because that's the only true and lasting peace that a person's soul can have in Christ Jesus. 
And so he wants them to be clear on this. Jesus says, I want you to have peace in me. You see, the peace that comes in Christ is an eternal and everlasting peace. See, Jesus has kind of already introduced this idea. If you go back a couple chapters to chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. And we'll come back to that in just a moment, but you see, for believers, the peace of Christ should be an ever-present reality. This shouldn't be something that we have today and then we don't have tomorrow. This should be something that's with us consistently, the peace that Christ provides. You see, but here's the issue. There's this this tension that we wrestle with. See, the scriptures remind us that our citizenship is in heaven, yet we reside here in a corrupted and fallen and imperfect world. So it's like, how can I have peace when I look around me at all of the things that are happening? When I see that the world is broken, when I see that babies are being murdered in the womb, when I see wars and I see famine, and I see death, and I see broken marriages, and I see all of these, this difficulty and this despair and this destruction, how in the world can you tell me to have peace in the midst of all of that? But that's what Jesus tells them. In fact, he reminds them that this is to be expected. Notice what Jesus says here. He says, in the world, you will have trouble. See, Jesus doesn't say you might have trouble or it could come possibly, you know, strong possibility. No, he speaks of it as a certainty. Jesus says you will have trouble. See, I think this is something we often neglect as believers. We forget and we think that just because we're in Christ that nothing will ever go wrong. Look, there are even people who subscribe to that type of theology that will tell you, yep, if you give your life to Jesus Christ, everything's going to be honky-dory. Nothing will ever go wrong. That's not what Jesus says here. He's speaking to his disciples who have believed in him. And he says, you will have trouble. It's to be expected. See, we must remember that we live in a fallen world where the effects of sin are clearly on display. Though we are redeemed, though we are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 reminds us that this world is longing to be restored still. It is corrupted. And we see that on display every single day. I praise God we have reason to rejoice. See, we have a hope that transcends this life in this world. See, our joy is not tethered to our circumstances. It's in a sinless, perfect Savior who is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus tells them here, he says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Amen. You see, to every believer in here this morning, this has to be our anthem. This has to be what we hang our hats on, that Christ has overcome the world. He is triumphant. He is the risen Savior. And it's in him and him alone that we stand. You see, though tribulation and trials are sure to come, we are firmly established by the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, there's going to be persecution. See, Jesus tells them, look, you're going to be hated. 
There's going to be adversity that comes your way. There will be sorrow. There will be failures. There will be letdowns. But again, I'm telling you, take heart. See, I just read this a few moments ago, but I want to go back to it. So Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 27, I want to read the second half of that verse. See, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give. Then he says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And this is the reason why, because Christ has overcome. He's defeated sin and death. See, Jesus is infinitely and eternally victorious. See, we have the wonderful privilege of seeing how the story unfolds. We get to read through the rest of John's gospel and see that Christ is crucified, but then on the third day, he raises again. We get to see how all of this plays out. See, that should be what encourages us. It should be Christ that leads us to take heart. Again, it shouldn't be any of our earthly circumstances because those things are so temporary, they can come and go. But the security, the life, the hope, that we have in Christ is eternal. It is complete. See, Jesus talks to them here and he says, and you're going to have some tribulation, but I've overcome the world. So it, I want to remind all of us of that too. So I want to read something for us and then we're going to end our time. See, I want to remind everyone in here that's the bride of Christ. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer and you're part of the body of Christ, man, you're, you're, you're Christ's bride. You're part of his people. And the beautiful reality, again, is we have this book that tells us what is to come, how the story is going to end. So let me read something for you. I want to first go to Revelation chapter 7. You can join me there if you want. If you don't feel like turning, that's fine. It's the last book of the Bible if you have questions where it might be. Revelation chapter 7. And I just want to read verses 9 through 17, because this is a wonderful reminder for the people of God in the midst of a fallen and broken world, facing tribulation, facing persecution, facing letdown and adversity. Praise God. This is what we get to look forward to. Revelation 7, starting at verse 9. This is what it says. It says, after this, this is the vision of John. He says, after this, I looked and behold. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where did they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, for they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. 
The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And if, if that's not enough, I want to read quickly Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll end our time. And then it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the very first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Praise God. That is the triumph and the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. I hope that's not a small or insignificant thing to you this morning. You see, this world is difficult. It's hard. It's ugly. It's broken. But we can have hearts that are encouraged. We can have souls that are encouraged because in Christ Jesus, we are victorious as well. He has overcome, and as his people, in and through him, we overcome as well. We can rejoice. So as we close our time, I just want to ask two quick questions, two things that I just want you to ponder on as you leave here this morning. Number one, where is your peace? Where is your peace? Is it in Christ Jesus or is it in something else? That's a simple question. You don't have to answer that out loud, but I want you to ponder on that. Where is your peace? And question number two, do you take heart knowing that Christ has overcome? Do you take heart knowing that Christ has overcome? Or do you allow tribulation and difficulty to take your joy? See, if we, last week, if you were here, Pastor Tyler preached through the earlier part of chapter 16, and Jesus says that the disciples are going to have a peace that no one can take from them. Is that you this morning? Do you have a joy that no one can steal from you? Because of Christ. It's my hope that for every believer in this room this morning, that we would be people who take heart, who stand firm, because Christ is victorious. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we are just so thankful that, Jesus, you have overcome the world. That though difficulty may come, though our faith is imperfect, Though we make mistakes, though we fall, though we stumble, that it is in you we have life and victory. Lord, I pray for everybody in this room this morning, first for the believer, that they would be encouraged knowing that you have overcome, but also to those in this room who don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that your spirit would be at work even now, that they would repent and believe on the Lord Jesus, that they would see him as glorious and give themselves to him today. Lord, would we be people who take heart, who have peace, who rejoice in all circumstances because of you, the risen Savior? And would we give constant glory to your name? And I pray these things in the name of Jesus.
Amen.